torment. Uh, others admire you and respect you for it. Uh, there's one group, the coaches, uh, they, don't, they appreciate what we do, they don't understand what we do. But once again, because we chose to pursue uh, officiating, we are going to be under a spotlight. Every sports official will have good days, every sports official is gonna have some bad days. There's no getting around it. Anybody who's gone to the professional level can actually admit to the fact, yeah, I kicked a call. Yes, I didn't have a good day today because I missed one out of 160 plays or situations, and that's enough to ruin our entire day. Um, but we have those good and bad days, and I gotta tell you, every one of us, regardless of the level that we're involved in, we're gonna face a moment of adversity. And hopefully it's only a moment. And it's something, that adversity, that we can overcome. Our bit, primary job is to make sure that we do our best so not to inflict that adversity upon ourselves, uh, self-inflicted. And how do we prevent self-infliction? Well, obviously in preparation. You've heard that so many times, but it is so true. So what do you think you're getting into? Adversity. Oh, adversity's not going to follow me. I'm not ever going to end up, well, we jokingly in the NFL, you know, tell each other we get in the locker room and we'll look at each other and go, da-da-da, da-da-da. In other words, the sports center highlight. Realize, yeah, our goal is to stay off a of sports center. And every now and then, yes, we do end up on it. Um, I've been involved in plays and situations, good and bad, uh, involved in sports center. And it brings positive and negative notoriety to me. But our job is to try to minimize those times of adversity and try to act in a proactive manner, being prepared for most all of the situations that you'll encounter. And when I say be prepared for most all, I still go walk off a game every game. Uh, it doesn't matter when, where, but I will walk off and say, I've never seen that before. Literally to this day, I have nearly 500 NFL games under my belt. As Dana said, I've officiated football for 49 years uh, through my high school career and my D1 career. How many hundreds of thousands of football plays can you say you've been involved in and you still see something new? It's absolutely incredible. So when I say we want to prepare ourselves for most of the situations we'll encounter. So keeping in mind that from the time that we literally step onto the court or step onto the field, that we are under scrutiny. Every act that we make, every behavior that we have involved in. Uh, I can give you an example. One time I was working college football and I walked up to a coach, shook his hand and smiled. And I walked up to the other coach, shook his hand and I didn't smile. The fact that I didn't smile was brought to the attention of one of the athletic directors. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, the reason I smiled was probably just for the fact that the coach had something cute to say before I shook his hand and kind of giggled at it a little bit. But nonetheless, just understand that kind of looking glass. And the higher up you go, the more that magnification grows. It grows and grows. So you have to say to yourself, how am I going to be able to handle the adversity that I'm, no question, I'm going to face at some time? Well, first of all, I want to backtrack a second and realize that, you know, we get involved in games and, and we have to be under control. When everything else is going to crap, we have to be the ones who are going to settle it down, look at it with a firm hand, but look at it with a, with a fair hand, and somehow, some way, make sure that we get it right, but it's fair to both teams. And I say this 
and I want to take a step further. There is a fine line in a ball game between being nervous and being excited. And when you can develop the understanding of where that fine line is with yourself, you'll have a better perspective, a better grasp of being able to deal with adversity. For some people, adversity would be, oh my God, uh, don't throw the ball into the corner of the end zone because that's where I'm positioned. They're fearful of what might happen and the consequences. There's others of us who would say, God, please throw it into my corner. Please, I can't wait for this to happen. And that fine line of between being nervous and being excited, it will show on the field. It will show to those who you work with. But more importantly, it'll show for those who you work for. So we look at adversity. What is adversity? You know, I went to, uh, went to the dictionary, actually, just kind of play with it, and went to uh, thesaurus, and I found out that it's a hardship or a suffering. Is it bad luck? Or is it something that I can control? Adversity, can I control adversity? Well, I'm not sure. So let's look back in our career. I tried to think back for the last couple of weeks about my career, because I recognize I am in the absolute twilight of my career, not just in the National Football League, but in officiating in general. Um, this gray hair, yes, on my chin does tell you, that uh, Dana, I started when I was a sophomore in my college year. And this is now going to be 50 years later after my sophomore year. So in starting with that, I started looking back at the adversity that I was facing as an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 21-year-old back in the early 70s. And so I looked and I you know, started asking myself a question. Um, how exciting is this? It's fun. It's great fun. But why wasn't I being recognized as a quality official? Well, I come to find out I wanted to be like one of my mentors, but one of my mentors, my main mentor, God, at that time, he was in his early 50s. And all of his experience, I didn't have his experience. I didn't have his reputation. And so with that, you have to learn that you have to develop those experiences. You have to develop your own reputation, not the reputation that somebody says you are. And so why am I not being recognized? It took a while to understand the coaches were looking for the experienced guy. They weren't looking for the young hotshot. Um, why is it taking so long for me to be recognized as a quality official? Well, I hadn't really developed and found that mentor who was going to give me that direction. And unfortunately, I had some direction that maybe wasn't too good because the direction I followed was what I thought a sports official, official should have been. And so in essence, I'm going to be honest with you. I had an epiphany. I really did. And it happened while I was coaching. I was in my 25th year. I'm coaching high school baseball. Just got a job as an assistant coach. And I mean, I'm officiating. I've got quite a few games now, but I'm not moving. And I didn't understand why. And I come to find out I had a tin badge on my chest. A tin badge. I was like that cop who walks up with a total authority and I'm gonna show you and you're gonna to listen to me and you're gonna follow my direction. And that Tim badge was pretty bad. I'll be honest with you, it was pretty bad. But it wasn't just there, I was a classroom teacher. I was a high school baseball coach and I found out I was wearing that badge virtually everywhere. Young teacher, young coach, yeah, young official. And one day in a, in a practice for a day, a game, I had an assistant coach who was a buddy of mine's father, and he was in his 60s. And we went through a practice, and I was, you know, getting guys ready for the game. I was excited. 
but I was pretty hard on a couple of kids about things. And he says, Tony, let's go have a beer. And after practice, we never went and had a beer after practice, but he says, we need to talk about something. So we went out, okay, we started talking about one thing or another. And he asked me, he said, how do you think Tim is feeling right now? He was our shortstop. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, do you think he's ready for the game? And I said, yeah, I think he's ready for the game. He says, what's his thought right now? What do you think he's thinking about? And I said, I hope he's thinking about the game. He says, what is dad asking? What is mom asking? How did practice go today? What do you think he's going to say? And I stopped, thought for a second. And I said, I was pretty hard on him. Well, why was Coach Carini hard on you? Well, you know, and kids are going to have an excuse. But his comment was, would you want to play for you after the way you talk to those kids today? Boy, it's like getting hit right between the eyes with a two by four. And the answer was no. The answer was absolutely no. Would I want to work under my direction? Would I want to have me as a coach? And I thought, what about in the classroom? Would I want me as a teacher? Uh, and then of course, in the, in the, that was in the spring and this is going to go to the fall, but it also related to officiating. Would I want to be the headlinesman that everybody wants to work with? Or am I the headlinesman very few want to work with? That was the epiphany. And in essence, I said, I want to be that teacher that I wish my kids had. I want to be that coach I wish I had. I want to be that referee or that game official that everybody says, I want you on my crew. That's an epiphany. Not that you're trying to please everybody. It was, I found out it's doing my job to the best of my ability. Being prepared. No excuses. I'm going to get back to no excuses, but no excuses. And I came to the realization that I didn't want me as my, well, thank God I can think back. And that was how many? That's almost 40 years ago. And so with that experience, over 40 years ago. So I started looking at that as number one. Hey, ad adversity. Adversity is misfortune. And so I wanted to be assigned to that game, that game that everybody wants. But I wasn't getting that game. I wasn't being assigned to that game. Why? Because over those first two or three years, four years, I was developing a reputation, unbeknownst to myself, but I was developing a reputation. I needed to get rid of that reputation. And, but I had those games that nobody else wanted, nobody else accepted. I was accepting everything as a young 20-something football official. But I was getting those games that had the bad coaches, that had the bad teams. And you know, you come to realize, wait a second, I was a coach. And my teams didn't win all the time. All of my students weren't successful all the time. Maybe I was one of those people. So I started asking myself, what kind of reputation am I gaining? But at the same time, something different. The epiphany was, wait a second, I'm a coach and this game is important to me. It's important to my players. It's important to their parents. And I realized I wanted a sports official. I wanted an umpire behind the plate who took our game seriously, who really helped the kids to be successful, helped me to be successful. And so as a coach, I realized, wait a second, I wanted a good official who cared, an official who worked with me, an official who provided me information, an official who didn't carry that big old tin badge on his chest. And so I took that to the season. And what I found out was that if I worked that game nobody else wanted and I did a good job, those coaches let people know 
this guy did a heck of a job for us. This guy talked to me. This guy gave me information. Even though we got our you-know-what's kicked today, he helped us to be successful. Boy, your reputation starts to change in the eyes of administrators. It changes in the eyes of coaches. And when you're working with other guys, they start to see the change. And so when we look at this, I always kind of talk in every speech I give about officiating guys. It's a player's game. It's a fan's game. It's a coach's game. It's an administrator's game. In our, in our league, it's the owner's game. My name is not on the football. Roger Goodell's name's on the football. He represents the 32 teams you see behind me. And so with that, you're going to start to see that through those adverse situations, you develop a reputation. It can't be handed to you. It's something you have to go out and get. It's something you have to earn. And it's going to be a reputation that I have to say with you, you're going to carry with you. So unfavorable, an extremely unfavorable experience or event. That's an adverse situation. So with it, what you got to learn to do is you got to take yourself out of it. People often say to me, they say, Tony, you look different on the field. You handle yourself differently than maybe you do when I see you in a classroom, when I see you walking down the street. You seem to walk a little taller. You seem to have a bigger, stronger stride. You have a confidence about you. Is it an act? And the answer is no, it's not an act, but it's a development over time of how I want to be perceived and how I realize how people perceive me is going to see how they react toward me also. So I want to react in a positive manner and develop that into a positive experiences. Like I said, your history will follow you. And does anybody have, I have skeletons in the closet. I can go way back and say, yeah, I didn't handle that very well. But I'd like to know that in the future and throughout my NFL career, I've handled things a lot differently than I had in the past. And I've, that's come through time, experience, and age. So I go into my own history a little bit. Let me give you a couple NFL examples of adversity. How's this for your very first game? You walk up to the sideline prior to the game, you stick out your hand, and there's Marv Levy, the head coach of the Buffalo Bills. Coach, I'm Tony Karenny, and he shakes my hand and pulls me tight, and he says, what effing rock did they pull you out from? And you, your heart stops. What effing rock did they find me under? Are you kidding? You know, that's what I want to say. And I said, coach, I said, it's great to meet you. We're going to work hard today. Good luck. Boy, what an experience. First meeting I have with a first head coach wasn't what I call the most positive meeting I've ever had. But you've got to say to yourself, you've got to learn the fact that they look at you in an adversarial role. Here's Mark Levy, who's had years and years and years of experience. He's been through Jim Kelly and four Super Bowl losses. He knows more about the game of NFL than I have in my entire life. I don't know what it's all about yet. And so it's up to me now. I've got to take that and say, I've got to prove to this man that I'm better than what he thinks he is, that I think what he thinks I am. I've got to show him. So you go on over time and you, you're putting all these experiences together. And that same year, I go to Miami and I found out real quick, the coaches are going to test you. They are going to test you like crazy. And here I am, I'm in Miami and on the sideline. Oh my God, I've got Don Shula. 
Don Shula. I've watched Don Shula, Baltimore Colts. I've watched him with the Dolphins. He's had these great, great, great teams. I don't know it's his final year. Sports Illustrated named him the Sportsman of the Year. I do know that. And I'm excited to work Don Shula. And he comes over to me during the game and he says, Tony, good job. They just told me upstairs they've looked at it. Nice job with that. Comes to me a little bit later, says, hey, you guys did a nice job. They told me upstairs you did a great job. And at some point in the late third quarter, he comes running at me with every non-sportsmanlike F-bomb you could ever imagine and tells me that I had done a terrible job, that I won't survive in the league. And he goes on and on and on and on, and he walks away. And I did it without any comment. I had a friend of mine, Sid Seaman, who was one of my mentors par excellence, who said, Tony, remember something. They can never quote silence. And so you take it and you took it and took it. Within 30 seconds, a gentleman, big as life, walks up next to me. He's an assistant coach. And I turn, big as a mountain, his name is Joe Green. Yeah, mean Joe Green. And he says, hey, ref, how'd you do that? And I said, do what? And he says, act like nothing happened. That man scares me. And I started to giggle on the inside, needless to say, but it's one of those things that you kind of learn over time is not let them take you out of your place, take you away from what your job is. And of course, the play he's talking about, you look at it on TV later, everything was fine. It was a test. It was a test of, well, am I gonna be able to step, step beyond that and go on? Um, here's another example. I had a game in uh, Indianapolis between the Colts and the Chargers. I got Jim Moore on one side and the Chargers coach, Bobby Ross. And I'm involved in a play that literally, literally, the entire stadium down in one end zone starts chanting, 99 sucks, 99 sucks, 99. And it starts permeating throughout the entire stadium. And they're all in unison, 99 sucks. Well, that happens to be my number. And uh, Bobby Ross walks up to me and he's got a smile on his face and he just says, wow. He says, I've taken a lot of heat before but this is far and away one of the best I've ever seen. He made light of it, which helped me say, okay, that's it. But what was my job from that point on? To show that I am not gonna fold. I'm better than that. I've gotta show I'm better than what they think I am. And so with that, you go over to the other sideline in the second half and Jim Mora makes allude to it. And said, he says, Tony, you're better than that. I know you are. Whoa validation that comes after a few years in the league they know what you're capable of doing and so you start realizing that if you continue the path that you know is true things are going to be okay a few years later i've got uh, i'm in baltimore with the ravens and jim harbaugh yeah the jim harbaugh who's the coach at michigan was the quarterback and uh we've got a play and he's dropping in the pocket he drops in the pocket he drops in the pocket and he throws a pass from the pocket nowhere near the line of scrimmage so I've got a flag down for intentional grounding. And he's on the ground. He crawled, literally crawled over the flag, picked it up and threw it right at me and hit me. So I pick up the flag and I throw it in the air. He goes, what's that mean? And I said, well, I said, Jim, what that means is we're going to penalize you intentional grounding in the spot you threw it from, which is here, which happened to be about 25 yards behind the line. Now I'm going to enforce that penalty and I'm going to now penalize you for throwing the flag at me. Now you've got a third and what turned out to be about a third and 55. And he just started laughing. Well, with that said, 
left it alone. He retired the next year. He's an assistant coach with the San Francisco 49ers. And I go to their training camp and he mentions to me this play out of, he walks over and shakes my hand and mentions says, Tony, that's one of the best ever. Under control, you just told me the way it's gonna be. No ifs, ands, or buts, this is it. I said, well, just understand that's the way it goes. Well, long story short, years later, he's now the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. And uh, I, I have him in a ball game and he starts to run on the field to complain and I just put my hand out and Harbaugh stops, dead in his tracks. Puts his hands up, turns and walks away. Or this is Jim Mora, excuse me. And uh, walks away. Jim Mora was with him, uh, with Harbaugh when we were talking. The point is, they realize what their limitations are. And that's kind of where it's at. But you go a step further and you talk about adversity and Dana alluded to, excuse me, the fact that I was discovered to have cancer. And uh, with that, throat cancer, and I was in, in the very edge of stage three going to four. I mean, I had it in a few um, lymph nodes and the whole shot and they were, you know, I didn't know what was gonna happen. Anyway, doctors wanted me to continue to work as long as I could through the adversity of my, uh, of my treatment. And so I didn't actually start treatment until uh, really the 1st of November. And it wasn't until just uh, before Thanksgiving that I could no longer work. But I have to tell you, I had the best season I ever had. I didn't care, there were no distractions. Nothing deterred me away from the officiating. Guys, it's something I love, something I have passion for. And I found how focused I was. I couldn't believe there was nothing else in the world but that game. Because every game might've been my last game. I didn't know if I could work next week because of the treatments, but they went on and on and on. And I can tell you, nothing got in my way. It was, people still are amazed at it. And I say, I'm amazed at it, but it's a lesson. And it's been a lesson ever since that those things that distract you, that create the adversity, don't let them do that. You can excel with adversity. And so I found out, really, it's all about attitude. It really is about attitude. Uh, most recently, uh, I had a game this last, this last year, playoff game, playoff game, AFC wildcard, the Bills and the Texans. And I kicked a play. I didn't actually kick it, kick it. But we had a, a play in the end zone where a player caught the football, started to walk out and tossed me the ball. Didn't signal for a fair catch, didn't take a knee. We have very explicit rules about it. And I went to myself and I kept saying, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, take it and he take it and he didn't. He tossed the ball at me and I go, we gotta talk about this. So I threw my, I, I let the play go as a touchdown, which we know was all wrong. It could be an illegal forward pass, which is what we were gonna make it. But make a long story short, we talked it out. And so the best thing to do is make it a touchback. Well, I went over to the head coach and they had explained to everybody that the player had given himself up through his actions. And we went on from there. Uh, the head coach from, uh, from Buffalo uh, wanted to talk to me. So I went over to him, total control, had, a back, uh, had our uh, alternate referee with me. And I walked over and said, coach. And he says, Tony, explain to me how you could make that a touchback. And I said, coach, after talking about it, it was pretty obvious that he had given himself up, that he didn't intend to do the throw an illegal forward pass. He intended to give himself up. And he says, Tony, we know, we know giving himself up means to, to go to a knee. 
We know it means to fall to the ground. We know it means to get into a fetal position. It means to just literally dive to the ground. And I said, traditionally, that is true, coach. And he looked at me and says, traditionally? And I said, traditionally, that's true. And walked away. Not a word said from that point on. But I got out in the middle of the field and we're just leaving. And I uh, put on my uh, O2O, which is a headset that we talk to each other with. And I said to the guys on the crew, I said, guys, you ever felt like you're standing stark naked at the 50-yard line? That's where I feel right now. And I got seven guys on the field with their thumbs up and three guys on the sidelines, same way, thumbs up. Realize the adversity that you're in. Well, I, I guess I want to say adversity really is how you get over the situation. It's your attitude. And I, I, jock, I joke about this, but you know what? My 2019 crew, I give a, we have a motto every year, and I mention every pregame. No excuses. None. No excuses. Don't come to me saying, well, Tony, I no, there are no excuses. If we screwed it up, stand up, we screwed up. Now we go forward. As they say, the old joke from the movie, uh, A League of Their Own, there's no crying in baseball. And I'm going to say it, and I'll leave you with this. There's no room for crying in officiating. Get over it. And I'll stop with that. And I'll ask if anybody has any questions, whether it's about the thing about adversity or it's anything in general that I could talk to you about. So Dana, I'd like to open it up. If anybody has questions that we can talk about and take this to maybe another level. How's that? Sounds great. So Tony, thank you for that. And uh, if anybody has questions, you can unmute yourself and just, uh, just fire away while you've got Tony at your disposal. Please, please, please. Really, are you guys going to be shy on me? Anybody, come on. Dennis, Ken. I'll start. Tony, uh, I remember that play. I was watching <laughs> in that playoff game, and I saw it, and I thought, uh-oh, what's, what's he going to do? And I remember it took a while for you to uh, actually get out in front and, and make your announcement after having the headsets on and all that kind of stuff. And I was really impressed with, I, I don't remember the words you said to the, to the whole stadium. But <laughs> it worked Something out like pretty after good. discussion. Yeah, and uh, the announcers, the TV guys were right on it the whole time. They were, they were waiting to hear from you too. And we, we all liked how you made that turn out to be um, uh, chicken salad instead of the other thing. Right. It's kind of interesting too, because what the first guy that came to me said, Tony, Tony, that's an illegal forward pass. And the next guy that came to me said, exactly, we have a case book situation that actually covers this. And it is an illegal forward pass. And, and we started talking about, well, according to the case book, the illegal forward pass occurred in the end zone. It's got to be, unfortunately, a safety. And no, we don't want to make it a safety. He tried to give himself up. So we concluded, let's make it an illegal forward pass because in order to be a safety, he had to run with the ball. He walked with the ball. <laughs> so he said, well, it is a penalty. How about if we take it to the, to the touchback spot and, and go five yards back? Everybody will agree to that. And then Mark Stein Kirshner came on the field. He was an alternate. And he said, Tony, he was trying to give himself up. 
And so we talked about that and said, you know, you're absolutely right. Best thing we could do is that. Now let's see what happens. Now, the question is, if we would have done that in Buffalo, I don't know that we'd got the same reaction from the crowd we got in Houston. So, no. you know, and that we can't, we can't concern ourselves with. Very interesting. Thank you. Something else, please. Hi, this is Ken Adent. I uh, appreciate you on this afternoon. Last night on our SASA crew, we had Terry White speaking about being com comfortable when you know a play is coming your way. Obviously, he's a back judge and he's talking about uh, punts and KCI. How comfortable are you on a scale of one to 10 um, during a play that you know is coming your direction or just one of those pivotal plays in a game? Uh, and I know I'm talking about a 40 year career here, but can you kind of touch base on, you know, your comfort zone? Well, comfort zone, I, I and honestly believe it comes through a number of things. Experience, it comes through your uh, preparation as much as anything, it's your preparation. Are you prepared for that play as it comes? Um, you know, the thing in football, we don't know what the play is going to be. I mean, we're like the defensive team. We can speculate, we can anticipate, but the comfort zone comes from literally your preparation um, for any adverse situation. I mean, like I said on that play I just described, we knew it wasn't a touchdown, but we had to have a vehicle to talk about it. And on scoring plays, I can get my replay people involved. I can get everybody involved. So that's one example. But when you talk about, you know, I once again use that phrase, are you nervous or are you excited? That very, very, very fine line. That preparation, that preparation puts you into the excited aspect. And when a play is coming your way, you know, I think I've gotten over, I want to be involved in everything. Uh, I just want to get it right. I want it to be done right. Um, that as a game referee, that's what my job is, is to make sure the game is officiated fairly, honestly, straightforward, and all those things. But to get back to your question, um, I really honestly believe that when the play starts to come my way, you're going to laugh at this, you get into the zone. You literally do. Uh, people, people always ask me this question, 75,000 people in the stands? And I didn't hear a thing. My sense of hearing goes when the game starts. Um, my sense of taste, I don't know that I taste anything. My sense of smell, you know, people say, don't the players stink? I go, I, I guess, I don't, I don't think about it. I'm focused, I, you know, we're visual. And with us, we're visual and we're using our, our hearing in order to accomplish all the tasks that we need to accomplish. And so when you get into the zone, itself, you literally, you're just knocking everything else away. Um, something that you, I tell when I go to clinics and camps, and you'll probably hear this uh, time and time again, if you're on the field and you're thinking about your mechanics, you haven't got your concentration on the play. Your concentration should be on the action of the players, not am I in the right place, not am I, did my signal look good? Um, you know, there's that old story we used to joke about is there are no attaboys for a good touchdown signal. There are no attaboys for being at the goal line when you're supposed to be at the goal line. There are no attaboys for when you have that 
that bang, bang play, and you got it right. That's what our job is. But if you're out of position, so mechanically, you've got to work on your mechanics so much and refine those things so much that the only thing you're focused on during the course of that game is the action or, and if you're going, if you're involved in, in SASA, you're going to hear me speak in a few weeks about a topic. And that topic is doing one job at a time and doing extremely well and then go to the next job and do it extremely well. Then the next job and do it extremely well. And what I mean by that is think about all the jobs and duties you have from dead ball action to the next dead ball action. If you're the back judge, what's your first duty? Make sure the players get up cleanly and they separate cleanly. Dead ball officiating, that's your very first duty. What's your second duty? Your second duty. Second duty might be, I gotta check the game clock and make sure it's running properly. What's my next duty? And if that's not doing, I have something I gotta do. If it's doing something else, next one is, well, I've got substitutions coming in. I've got to make sure that they're legal or they're illegal. And I, as a referee, I'll go through, I call them chunks. Every play has a series of chunks that I have to perform. And for me, it's dead ball action. It's all the play clock and game clocks operating. Next thing I go to is substitutions. Next thing I go to is counting players. Next thing I go to is, are they in a huddle? There's rules about being in a huddle, not being in a huddle. Next thing I go to is a formation. Next thing I go to is preparation before the snap. Is everybody set? You know, so if you look at that, I just went through six different chunks. Every play will face, face me somewhere between 10 and 14 different chunks that I have to get right. And so when you're looking at a play, a game has 150 plays, I might have as many as 2,400 separate things I had to do in that game and get them all right. And if I kick one, such as a play clock, and it wasn't operating and I didn't reset the play clock properly. Or if I had holding and I kicked a holding call, that's one out of 2,500 decisions I had to make that day. But in our league and in officiating, that one error is enough to give you a downgrade. And a downgrade, we're not looking for downgrades. And so as you go through it, you will be the one to know if you had that good game or not the good game. Uh, I don't know if I answered the question quite, but the attitude I have is preparation relaxes me. Preparation puts me in the moment. Preparation keeps me away from all the other things that surround us. And then we make the decision based on the information we have. Excellent answer. Thank you, sir. Sure. No pressure. Hang on. Um, you talk about, you speak about preparation. How detailed do you get on pregame? Uh, How did we get into preparation pregame? Right, yes, sir, as to what Okay, well, my preparation for pregame starts usually about an hour and a half after our game has ended. Um, we get a thumb drive that has the game on it, the TV aspect of the game. And the first thing I'll do when I get on an airplane, I begin the review of that game because I'm gonna use part of that review of the game into our crew preparation, our crew preparation. Um, as a crew, we, you know, we get home, we fill our game reports and things of that nature. Then on Monday, I ask the guys on the line of scrimmage, we have things to do associated with our game. Uh, we, we close out everything that we wanna do on Monday. 
on Tuesday. We then have videotape available to us from coaches' tapes and the TV games. I asked the, the, uh, my crew on Monday, give me all the information, things that we should review from our previous game on Monday. On Tuesday, let's start our preparation for next Sunday. And so the guys on the line of scrimmage will look at both teams that we will have. They will look at previous games and look at their formations. We'll look at, you know, the ability of some players. Uh, me and the umpire will look at the offensive and defensive lines of both teams. And we'll look at, you know, guys that get their arms out a little too far and they start reaching and grabbing or a guy that does, has poor feet. Our back judge, he's going, you know, we have different back judge mechanics than you have in college. So he's going to be looking at, you know, is the nose guard one who's going to grab on holding plays to prevent the center guard from going to the second level? And then he's going to move over to responsibilities. And, you know, so everybody has something. And we put this film together on Tuesday. They send me specific plays that we will all look at on Saturday. On Wednesday, I put that meeting together. On Wednesday, we also get a test that we have to send back to the, to the league office in New York that we all take individually on computer. On Thursday, I begin my individual preparation. And so I'll sit and I'll review the rule book. I'll review casebook plays. I'll review more videotape. Friday's kind of my day to get everything together. So, you know, washing clothes, put the uniform and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know how I'm gonna react in coronavirus. I can't take my, my favorite sweetheart out to dinner on, on uh, Friday nights, like is our tradition. So I don't know how we're gonna handle that one. But on Saturday, we're on an airplane, here we go, and I get together with the crew and we hold a, anywhere between a two and three hour videotape replay session, a review session in preparation for the game. So how much preparation? Uh, I think you just heard it. Uh, we've already started our rules tests as individuals and as a group. Um, we hold uh, Zoom meetings ourselves. We've already had two uh, in which we have about 140 participants uh, in the NFL. So pretty extensive. It, it gets going. And uh, my understanding is next week, we're going to have a three-day Zoom uh, clinic dealing with rules and preparation for the upcoming season. So it's a, it seems like it's a never-ending adventure. Uh, one that I love and one, I be honest, I'm going to miss uh, a great deal. Thank you. So Tony, uh, Dennis Barella here. You touched a little bit on um, your pre-snap routine with your chunks. Now, I was listening to another webinar where a back judge described one of the things he, he uses as, um, especially on kick plays, scrimmage kicks, punts, where he, he tells himself that he expects the punt returner to muff the ball or drop the ball to keep him from having an inadvertent whistle. Uh -huh. Over your 40 years career, what, what's one trick that you've learned as a white hat for a referees on, say, Hey, based on this formation, I know that this is going to happen or... Yeah, expect the unexpected. I'll, I'll be honest, uh, in my career, you're going to giggle at this one. I always want to make sure there's a clean exchange between the center and the quarterback. Um, back, this goes way back, so bear with me. Back into the 70s, um, University of Nebraska ran a fumble ruski play in which the center took the ball to the quarterback, but the quarterback never got the ball, so the center kept it and stayed hunched over and ended up running for a touchdown. Uh, we've had fumble ruski plays left and right. And so I always want to see that clean exchange, and I can tell you, as a referee, 
um, 22 years in the NFL, I've had four horrible exchanges where they never got the football and the center actually kept the ball up in his butt. That's, there's an example. So I tell myself, I, you know, this is a chunk. I want to see this snap, see the exchange. I want to make sure it occurs. So there, that's just one example. Um, you know, today the Vogue play is virtually every team runs out of the shotgun. They don't go T, T formation quarterbacks. So now when there is going to be a man in motion prior to the snap, I am, my antennas have gone up. We're going to have a pitch pass. A quarterback's going to get the ball and pitch it forward to the guy who's in motion running across. I have to make sure he doesn't bat the ball. He can catch it and toss it forward or a volleyball catch and pass it forward. He can't bat the ball forward. And so that's a penalty. So I have to view on that. So there's that little, you get those little keys say, okay, I have to be prepared for this kind of play. And you know, when it goes by, just don't think much of it. Um, as a referee, little things, I wear two elastics on my hands, one on my, my right hand. Um, I'm looking at myself, so I seem on the wrong side, but one on my right hand. And this is the one where I actually put ball placement. So I say, if I have my elastic on this, it's on the left hash because I'm going to use that same hand, reach it out to validate that I have 11 players. That's my signal for 11. So before I signal anything, I want to make sure I have the ball on the correct hash, left hash, right hash, middle of the field, halfway between, halfway between the hashes. So I do that, number one. On the other hand is my, my down indicator, first, second, third, and fourth. But with that also, if I keep it on the outside, I tell myself the quarterback is in a shot a T formation. If I reverse it and put the band on the inside of my hand, I know he's in a shotgun formation. You're gonna say, why is that a big deal? Because as plays develop, and I've had it happen at, I don't know, four or five times, where a quarterbacks in shotgun formation end up catching passes. And I've also had it one time, where a T formation quarterback pitched the ball back, went downfield and caught a pass. He can't do that. He is ineligible in our rules when he's in a T formation. So I may be doing things that only happen five times in 20 years to me, but they happen. Um, I had a allude back to the play we talked about before um, with the uh, play with Houston and Buffalo. And I got criticized by one of our former referees who's now in the media said that I mechanically was unsound and on and on and on. And I'm the one who baited the kid into throwing the ball forward, creating the whole mess. And my response to that is in the NFL, I have, I counted them up. I'm somewhere around 4,200 kickoffs, 4,200 basically done what I've done 4,200 times. This time something went wrong. So guess what? For now on, guess where I'm going to be? I'm going to be hanging the head at the end line until such time that, and I usually hang there because I know he's going to take a knee. Everybody takes a knee. That's why I was walking forward. So mechanically, I made a absolute screw up. Did I bait him into it? I don't know about that. But those little things, yes, you're going to find that there's going to be tip-offs. Um, there'll be that team when you're watching them. I mean, this is why we look at all the film that we look at, that if we have uh, a Gronkowski is an example, who's in a very tight, tight formation. Uh, we know that he's probably going to block. If he's 
flexed out half a step, we know he's probably going to be a receiver, or at least he's going to chip off somebody. And teams, those are their tendencies. And in our league, you're going to say, well, don't other teams pick up on the tendencies? The answer is yes, they do. But the NFL is a matchup of personnel, not of schemes. So in high school, this is what they run. We'll scheme against it. College, this is what they run. We'll scheme against it. In the NFL, yeah, you have schemes, but you also are going to put this player against that player in this situation or that situation. So we start looking at those keys also, and it isn't just uh, you know, the play type or situation, it's maybe where players are located. Okay. Thanks, Greg. You're welcome. I'm gonna put you on the spot real quick here. Who okay. is the best player that you've ever officiated in your career, and I know I'm asking. I know I'm asking a big question here, but I'm curious. No, if hands down, hands down, hands down, no question. Barry Sanders. I I would not have thought you had said Barry, but I can understand that. Barry Sanders was the most explosive player, literally, and he got tackled behind the line of scrimmage because he he never got hit. He he literally was that evasive. But Barry Sanders, and I'm not exaggerating, each of his thighs were as big as my waist. His, his legs were huge, and within one step, he could run full speed. And I saw him do things that I, they were, no, no other human could do. I mean, so I've got that player. Believe me, I've got players that I can tell you at every position that I've seen that are just the best I'd ever seen at that position. I mean, quarterbacks, unfortunately, I've got about a half a dozen of them. Um, but with that said, they're all magic. They're all just magic. Um, it's amazing. Best, I'll go through it. Best defensive end I've ever seen, Reggie White. Reggie White could take his forearm and bull rush any offensive lineman, virtually any. Um, the best offensive tackle, Tony Baselli. I knew if I had a game with Tony Baselli, there would have to be no holding. It was amazing. Um, the best, best receiver, well, I was deep when I saw receivers, so I only had a three-year career looking at receivers. Uh, obviously, Jerry Rice at, in those days. Uh, the best defensive back that I ever saw, Ronnie Lott. Um, cornerback, um, oh, character, what's his name? Um, ESPN analyst, uh, where's the jewelry? Um, can't think of his name off the top of my head. Um, character of all times, but anyway. Yeah. Players, players, players. Deion Sanders. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing. I mean, these guys are, you ask yourself, how could a guy get to the NFL and stop and think about this? The NFL, first of all, you got your college. I'll use, I'll use the Pac-12. The Pac-12 might have, in any one given year, um, I'll just say 100 seniors and or players who are eligible for the NFL draft. Of those 100, 25 may be selected, maybe 30 will be selected to go to training camps with the teams. Of those 30, maybe 12 to 15 make a ball club. Of those that make the ball club, they're in their first year. They go out there and they're playing against, in some cases, men that are, well, Tom Brady, 43 years old, and all that experience. Or they're playing against linemen or defensive backs, whoever, who've got eight and 10 years. You know what? They were the best of their graduating year and their conference at what they did. 
And so you've got those players, they are in the NFL. And then somehow, don't ask me how, there's that handful of players who are so much better than everybody else. And you go, how did God do this? What gifts did these guys have? And it's absolutely incredible. Unfortunately for us as game officials, we weren't born with that uh, magic. We got to work our ass off to get there, right? So, leave that. Tony, my name is Stan Rich, and I was just curious on Sunday mornings when you get up and get to the stadiums, do you still get a, a little bit of butterflies when you walk out on the field, or do you, or is that over with for you? Oh, do I ever get butterflies? Part of my motivation, and I'll be honest with you, part of my motivation at my age is there's nothing else I do in my life that gives me butterflies. Um, I go to a game site, we get in the locker room, and I'm not exaggerating, starting about 45 minutes before game time, I've got to go to the bathroom four to six times. I've just got to go, and believe me, the last thing I do before I walk on the field is I've got to go to the bathroom. I am, call it, excuse me ladies, I call it the nervous pee. I just got to go. I get out on the field and I'm okay with everything i'm okay with everything and then it comes time for the kickoff and you get out there and i look around and i mean in all sincerity i look around and my throat is dry my mouth is dry i've got butterflies in my stomach and i found a way to to, to relax i got to find a way to relax and get rid of that and it's over time and i'll tell you in all honesty over time i learned that fine line between being nervous and being excited and Here's I go from the nervousness, and it really isn't nervousness, but I go from that butterfly to being really prepared because guys, I'm living my dream. I'm living it. And if I'm afraid of my dreams, I should go home. I really should. If I'm afraid of what could happen out there, I, I gotta go home. And I'm not going to go home. And so with that said, I hold my hands up. I know the kid, and I get to do this, I hold my hands up telling the kicker, do not kick the football until, and he's been told until the referee signals you to do so. And when I hold up my hands, I always say to myself, this is too cool. Exact words, this is too cool. I blow the whistle. And when I say it, this is too cool, everything in me just goes, and I'm relaxed. And I go, okay, bring it on. And I blow the whistle because I'm living. I want this so bad. And there's nothing else, nothing else in my life that gives me that same degree of internal satisfaction. It's, it's fun. And when people ask me, they, they say, Tony, it's fun. I say, yeah, it's fun. But what is fun in officiating? What is fun in officiating? And my attitude and I say this to the crew all the time, my crew, that, and I shouldn't say my, I say to our crew, I say, guys, fun is being successful. Fun is being successful. And when we walk off the field and we can give everybody a hug and we give everybody a high five, and I gotta tell you, when we're successful, the soda pop tastes sweeter, the whole world looks different, it's great. When we're not successful, there's the adversity. 
And so the butterflies are there. It's how do you handle the butterflies? And the butterflies are that excitement. You don't get butterflies. I mean, maybe you get butterflies when you're scared. You go to the movie and you know that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre guy is around the corner with the chainsaw. I don't know. But I don't get the same butterfly. I get nervous. I, I start to shake. And I don't get the shakes on the field. I get the excitement of being a part of something great. That's what's cool about it. Thank you. Evening, Tony. Oops. You're welcome. Evening, Tony. Uh, my name is Corey Norman. So uh, I have a question for you. Over your years, so you probably had some, you know, established some reports with each of the uh, NFL coaches. So probably uh, very good reports, some not so good reports. And then, of course, you got others you just can't read, like Belichick. So <laughs> <laughs> how do you mentally prepare yourself for those ones that are not so favorable? Or how do you actually mentally prepare yourself for uh, dealing with coaches? Well, you know, and okay, I have to go back to the very beginning of how do you gain that reputation? Okay, that, that's really the key. How do you gain the reputation? What is your reputation? amongst fellow officials and amongst the coaches and administrators. Um, but for myself, I'll give you an example. Um, we know we're going to have a difficult time with this particular coach, okay? We know it. He's got a track record. He's just that way. And I got to be honest with you, there's only a couple in the NFL that really consistently, I'm going to say, are really tough to work with. Only a couple. Um, and with that said, how do you do that? How do you deal with it? First of all, you've got to put yourself in a situation. Okay, if he calls me up, blah, 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 what am I going to do? Well, okay, how does he call me that? Does he call me that out on the field and he's screaming at me and, he, and he's throwing a tantrum? Or does he call it to me and he say that to me as I'm coming over to the sideline when I have a chance to calm him down? A little different there, but what I do, first of all, just so you do know, every week we finish our pregame and an hour and a half before kickoff, we send two officials to each locker room to greet the coach, gather information, to go through the timeline of bringing the team out and the kickoff and all of that. Uh, we've gone through TV so they know when introductions are occurring, but we as game officials, we present all that to the head coach. And then we ask him, coach, do you have any concerns or questions. And I ask my guys, take his concerns and questions seriously. I have my guys take a little notepad with them. And anything the coach says is a concern, they write it down. Don't just hear it, write it down. What message is that conveying to the head coach? They're listening to me. If he has a play, write it down, or better yet, ask him for a copy of the sheet that he's taking it from. We will destroy it. We'll keep the integrity of that play amongst ourselves. Listen to all his concerns. So we come back and we hear what his concerns were. God, he's tighter than you know what, or he's as loose as can be, or whatever, whatever his concerns are. At 15 minutes, we walk out on the field. Now, I take with me our down judge, which in high school, I guess, is still your head linesman, and our line judge. Why do I take those two with me to each head coach? It's because they are going to be our first sounding board. They're our first line of communication with that head coach. More than likely, the head coach spends time around the down box, around first down. So our line judge and 
down judge are going to be pretty much on that line of scrimmage all the time. And so what I do is I bring them with me. I introduce myself, even though I've been with them. I'll use uh, Coach Pete Carroll. I've worked with Coach Carroll forever since he's been in the league and feel I know him extremely well. But you know what? His name's Coach Carroll, not Pete, Coach Carroll. And so I go to Coach Carroll. Coach Carroll, Tony Carreni, how are you today? What do you have in store for us? They say, well, not much. Coach, I, and I'm sorry, I missed a step there. After I introduce myself, I introduce the down judge. I introduce the head linesman. And invariably they'll go, oh yeah, Tim and I have already met. In the locker room, they already met. He's the guy that conveyed the information to me. I'm gonna turn around now and convey that same information back. I understand you had a concern about whatever it may be. And you also had a concern about something. Yes, coach, we also have a concern that has been brought to our attention. I want you to be aware of this, okay? Now I understand that you and I are going to make all the final decisions together if anything comes up, yes. And we've opened the line of communication. You're to be talking with only Tim and uh, Dana as an example. Yep, we're all set and ready to go. Thanks, coach. What have I just opened up or what have we just opened up? A positive line of communication. So that if we have something going on on the sideline, my line judge or down judge can go to the head coach and say, uh, coach, can you help me out with something? Uh, I've got an assistant coach. You and us, you and we understood that you and us are going to make the talk and decision and all. Yeah, he's getting out of line. Can you help us out with that? And invariably it's taken care of. Or he'll, if he wants to start jumping on him, uh, our guys on the sideline, then they bring me involved. And I will come in and lay, believe me, I lay down the law. And so we lay it down. But invariably, if I go over there and he wants to bitch, you know, they call timeout and they want me over there and they want to talk, blah, 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 blah. My first, you know, they want to start. Before I get there, I say, coach, let me get there. I'll put my hand up, literally like, hold on. Let me, let me come in. I'll walk in. I won't jog in right to him. I'll walk in and I'll come and keep more than arm's length away. And I say, coach, you've got a concern about something? Yeah, guy, I got And he starts screaming. And I'll say, coach, I'm here to listen to your concern. I'm not going to tolerate nor I'll listen to. Okay. And they're, okay, well, Tony, and blah, 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 blah. I hear you. I understand. Or whatever it may be. And I take care of it and walk away. I don't, I don't ignore them. I always listen to what they have to say. But if they want to abuse me, I say, coach, listen, I'm not going to allow you to MF me or anybody else on this crew. So let's step away and let's take a deep breath. And they know that. Now, if you want to continue, that's going to be your choice. So they, they know what it's all about. There's a line drawn in the sand. But we drew the line an hour or two hours earlier. And we drew it through the positive side of communication. Hope that helps. Thank you very much. And yes, I have got PO'd at coaches before. So we'll stop with that one too. Um, and I do have to remove myself. Let's just say that. All right, let's take, let's take one, one more question uh, for Tony before we let him uh, enjoy his evening. I mean, he's enjoying it now, but maybe go eat dinner or something. Tony, how do you handle things when people recognize you on your daily life after a game or something that went the way they didn't want it to go? Well, generally, I don't have that issue. Um, I try to stay as low key as possible. I don't wear any clothing that says NFL on it. Um, 
guys, let me tell you, you go to airports, it can be a scary place with people. Um, so I wear nothing. I don't have any insignia for the National Football League Associated. Um, generally speaking, I've not, I'm not one of those who gets easily recognized, which for me is a positive. Uh, I know I'm going to do a disfavor to some of our referees and our former referees who want to be recognized. Um, I was brought up, my number one mentor uh, had said to me, and I firmly believe this, our, it's, it's a player's game, it's a fan's game. It's an announcer's game. It's everybody else's game. It's not our game. Um, we are the people there to administrate and jurisdict the game. Okay, that's great. I have friends of mine who are going to say, no, Tony, you know, it's, we should have that ego. It's about us too. Now, to me, I don't feel that way. My job, my goal is to leave the field and nobody knew we were there. To leave the field, nobody knew we were there. And I can say, I'm going to guess, as I say, um, nearly 500 games, I can say we probably have succeeded in that in probably 96, 97% of the games. There's going to be that three or 4%, da-da-da, da-da-da, you know, it's going to be there. Um, but how do I handle it? I just try to be very noncommittal. I said, uh, you, know, you know, somebody comes up and says, you know, we saw that play and blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, well, we saw it differently out on the field. That's the way I'll put it. We saw it differently on the field. This is what we saw on the field. And wish you good luck, you know. Uh, so try to stay, we try to stay away from those conflicts. Although I can't tell you, cutest story ever. When I first started, and I was a, a, a side judge and I had a play at the goal line on a Monday night game in Pittsburgh. And it was in my first year when we didn't have cell phones, we had voice recorders. And my sister had a Monday night football party for me. How exciting, okay? Uh, and all my friends, and everybody was having a good time, I guess. Anyway, I had a play at the goal line, uh, touchdown or non-touchdown, and the announcers disagreed with it and my call, and I left it alone. Okay, we get home. I get home, I push a button on my voice recorder, and my sister says, quote, how can you do this to me? You embarrassed me in front of all of my friends. I went, whoa, okay. It wasn't my goal. And it wasn't me having the party. And I don't know what your expectations were, but it, I'm not there for your, and I, we had a nice talk and I told her I'm not there for your entertainment. I had a job to do. And then we got it squared away and everything's fine. So enough, enough there, okay? <laughs> Leave it to a sibling, right? <laughs> yes. Anyway, well, um, Dana, I cannot begin to say thank you enough. Um, if there's anything I can ever do for the New Mexico officials, please, please, please ask. Um, as you know, I've been there in the past. I'd be happy to help you out in any way I can in the future. And for you guys that are, and ladies that are on to the call tonight, I appreciate your time and your, your questioning were excellent, excellent questions. And I look forward to meeting every one of you sometime soon. And Tony, thank you so much. I appreciate you spending your your Friday night with us and it was great to see you and uh, you know certainly you know me if I need something I'll, I'll definitely harass you because that's how I operate so uh, you know that about me but uh, you know for those of you who don't know I think I, I at one point was probably stalking Tony before he came to New Mexico as our keynote speaker so he knows I'm not above a little bit of that but uh, 
you know, we really appreciate that. I appreciate your friendship and your support and, and spending time with us and yeah, sharing good. your stories and your, uh, your passion. It's, you can oh. definitely, it's palpable. So we, I love how much you love what you do. You're always gracious. And I only have one thing for you. Thank you. There's, there's my Cowboys. <laughs> Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Thank you so much. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Dennis, I don't know if you want to give a little rundown for the rest of the, the weekend. What's yeah, left of sure. Thanks. Tomorrow, 10 a.m., uh, Sarah Thomas talking about line of scrimmage, mastering the basics. Tuesday the 12th, we'll have Esteban Baca from the Lone Star Conference. We have five videos uh, with questions with high, high school rules. And then next Thursday the 14th will be Tyree Walton from the Big 12 talking about the back judge position. Awesome. Well, Dennis and Ken, thanks again for getting these started for us. And uh, uh, this was recorded because Dennis was kind enough to remind me to press record. So thank you for yeah. doing that. Um, so we will uh, we'll get the link up and out to you all, hopefully on Monday. Um, sir, thanks again for joining us on a Friday night. And uh, we will talk to you all hopefully tomorrow morning. Have a great evening and thank, thank you all again. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, everybody.